Oh, are you ready? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I'm a little out of it. Um, thanks for being here. I barely made it, um, but I'm glad to be here. Uh, Sunday night, our four-year-old came into our bedroom, which is not unusual, unfortunately, um, in the middle of the night. And then he got up on our bed and threw up everywhere, and that is slightly less usual. Um, this was tough for a couple reasons. One is that the next day he was due to go back to school after a week of spring break, so I knew immediately my plans were upended for the next day. And then the other thing about having a kid with a stomach virus is it's basically standing in front of a firing squad. You're just waiting for your turn. So um, the next morning I texted a friend and told her what had happened, and she said, I dare you to find the grace in this. So I said, challenge accepted, and apparently God took me at my word because um, I thought I'd made it through the whole week. We had some, some unpleasant times, but I thought I had escaped the firing squad. And then last night, Jason and I, my husband, went to dinner, and we were at a lovely restaurant having a lovely time, and I looked across the table at him, and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go destroy that bathroom. And that's what I did, and I did it multiple times. And... Um, that's how we started our trip. Um, but there was grace. We made it to see Hamilton last night. We had been, thank you, that's the proper response. Yeah. Um, which is abject jealousy, by the way, is what I was looking for. Um, we got tickets months ago. Um, I realized that it's, the internet chatter has gotten out of control. I'm kind of a contrarian, so I want to hate the things everyone else loves. Um, but what I can tell you about the show is that it's true. To quote Han Solo, it's true, all of it. Um, we got our tickets before the cast performed on the Grammys, so we were allowed to pay with our credit card rather than our firstborn child. Um, and that works out well because I'm talking about him a lot today, so it would be awkward if I had gotten rid of him. But um, it was probably, I'm so glad we made it. It was probably the most cathartic experience I've had since giving birth. And in a lot of ways, it was better. Um, no one removed my organs and replaced them. There was a lot less blood. Um, there was a bar, unfortunately. I didn't partake as much as I usually would. Um, so it was pretty great, and I also got to cry a lot, pretty much from start to finish, and that's one of my favorite things to do. So um, the reason I'm telling you all this is not just to make you jealous, although you should be, like I said, but to let you know how close I came to scrapping this whole grace talk and just performing the entire show as a one-woman reenactment, which I'm not going to do. And if that doesn't um, make you believe in grace, I don't know what will. But I am going to show you a clip from another musical. It's slightly less recent, um, but I think it's still a good one. I feel a surge of deep satisfaction, much as a king astride his noble steed. Thank you. When I return from daily strife to harp and wife, how pleasant is the life I lead. Dear, it's about the children. Yes, yes, yes. I run my home precisely on schedule. At 6.01, I march through my door. My slippers, sherry and pipe are due at 6.02. Consistent is the life I lead. George, they're missing. Splendid, splendid. It's grand to be an Englishman in 1910. King Edward's on the throne. It's the age of men. I'm the lord of my castle, the sovereign 
the leech. I treat my subjects, servants, children, wife, with a firm but gentle hand. Noblesse of liege. It's 6.03 and the heirs to my dominion are scrubbed and tubbed and adequately fed. And so I'll pat them on the head and send them off to bed. Ah, lordly is the life I lead. Okay, so you've probably figured out by now that that was me a few years ago before I shaved my mustache, stopped speaking with a British accent. Um, just kidding. I still speak in a British accent sometimes, especially after Downton Abbey. Um, that was Mr. Banks and Mary Poppins. And his philosophy is one that I had until not long ago and honestly still do sometimes. I had a plan. It was thoughtfully crafted, literally outlined, so detailed and specific that the Roman numerals extended to the right margin of the page onto which I had thoughtfully typed it and presented it to God because I am nothing if not helpful when it comes to running the universe. All I needed was for him to sign off on my master plan and for a while things seemed to be going according to schedule until they weren't. And that's what I want to talk about today when Grace steps in and utterly ruins the ordered, predictable, safe life we've managed to run so well on our own seemingly without it. So yeah, the title of this talk is Grace Stinks. And when I mentioned that to David, I asked him if I should include a subtitle and he was very diplomatic. He said, it might be helpful to give people an idea of what they can expect. So I added one and it's when the healer carries a sword. And that's a reference to a couple of passages. One is the verse of Matthew when Jesus told the disciples that he came to bring, not, he came to bring peace. Sorry, he came not to bring peace, but a sword. And he was kicking off their earthly ministry, but I also like to think of it as one of the top misunderstood verses of Scripture. Um, just as an aside, another of my favorites of those is 1 Corinthians 13. It's when Paul tells us that God will provide an escape from and endurance in temptation. But what people like to hear in needlepoint onto pillows is God will never give you more than you can handle. Well, pardon me for saying that, yes, he fucking will. That's sort of the point. In fact, I'm going to be providing some examples. Um, the other reference for that subtitle is Tolkien's, from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Um, some of you might know it as Jackson's Lord of the Rings. When Aragorn, the warrior king, is described this way, a great lord is that and a healer, and it is a thing passing strange to me that the healing hand should also wield the sword. I don't think it's a coincidence that those passages are so similar. But the title here, Grace Stinks, is one that was hard to pick because I had so many competing ideas, and I'll share a few of them with you now. There was potty training in the law. I'm so uncomfortable right now. And this is especially prescient. Someone find me a bathroom or, or something bad is going to happen. I didn't know I could sweat from there. And finally, why God, why? All of which, by the way, besides the potty one, and only because our kids are at home this weekend, thank you, Mom and Dad, are things I could say right now because I am so not a public speaker and this is so not my comfort zone or my scene. When I talk in front of people, I sweat and shake and turn 50 shades of red, which, by the way, will be the title of my memoir if I ever write one. But I found our Lord and healer to be a complete disrespecter of comfort zones, so here we are. Another thing I'm not is outdoorsy. I always wanted to be, and when I lived in New York, I figured I went to Central Park a lot, so that made me outdoorsy. But um, my first clue as to my non-outdoorsy status should have been when I was about eight. 
And my mom shipped my sister and me off to a week-long day camp. And we rode separate buses. And the first thing I remember when, we got, when I got off the bus, the non-air-conditioned, smelly, sweaty bus, was seeing a horse about 20 feet away, ass-facing me, proceed to empty his colon all over the ground. I'm aware now that this kind of thing happens all the time with animals and with children. But at the time, I was shocked and disgusted, and I was looking around for an ally. I was like, did anyone else just see what happened? What the hell is going on here? This is uncivilized. But all the other kids were just running around being kids, not even noticing. So I spent the rest of the morning looking around for my sister. And after a trip to the bathroom, during which I found that all of the toilet paper was wet, have no idea why, I finally saw her. And we ran to each other, and before I could even open my mouth, she said, we have to get out of here. This place is unacceptable. And I don't know what we did or said, but somehow we were obnoxious enough to get an audience with the camp director, and she called our mom, who came to get us. And that's the story of how we didn't make it through the first half day of a week-long day camp. It was especially notable because the camp was run by our local YMCA, which was run by our great-uncle at the time. So family gatherings were a little awkward for a while. So no, I'm not outdoorsy, and I tend to subscribe to my sister's motto. She probably conceived it after that day at camp. She says, if God wanted us to camp, then why did he invent hotels? And I really can't argue with the theological soundness of that. As you can by now imagine, I'm also not a fan of horses. In fact, a few years later, my distaste for them reached a new high when I went on a spring break trip with our youth group to, yes, a camp in North Carolina. And for some reason, I chose my afternoon activity one day to be horseback riding. I guess maybe I wanted a shot at redemption. Cut to my horse clinging to the side of what felt like a mountain, but was probably a small hill. And I was sweating buckets and praying to make it back alive. I think the horse either had a death wish or like the final Jaws movie, it was personal. He just didn't like me. But after that debacle, I looked sort of like this. Hey, how you doing there, Trooper? Where's that ball swapping nag you were riding? Oh, that horse bucked you off. What happened? You got hungry and had to eat the nag, huh? Does anyone recognize that movie, by the way? Just wondering. It's, um, it's called The Great Outdoors. It was, I think it was 1988, John Candy. And um, just as a side story, um, when Jason and I first started dating, we were scrolling through Netflix one night trying to pick a movie. And that came up, and I, I said, this movie is hilarious. My family watched it all the time growing up. He eats a 96-ounce steak. It's so funny. And we watched it, and I'll be honest, it does not hold up. Um, I remembered that scene, so I used it, but it's... Um, Sadly, after that, I was no longer allowed to pick the movies for movie night. But, um, but yeah, so anyway, after I looked like that, I was officially done with horses, or so I thought. So as I mentioned before, Jason and I have, um, well, we have two boys, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And our older son, James, had spinal surgery at age two. And that's how long it took them to figure out he needed it which meant that the lead-in to that was two years of ineffective and painful physical therapy, along with a muscle surgery. 
countless doctor visits, x-rays, and scans under sedation. And once we sorted all that out, we had to deal with the fact that we had a three-year-old who wasn't speaking. So we saw another doctor and got a diagnosis and threw him into all kinds of therapy and had him tested through the school system and he was placed in a special needs three-year-old class. So his main therapist told me on the, one of the first days of treatment that she would have him talking in six months, which would have been September. So when he still wasn't talking then, I kind of tapped on my watch at her and at God and said, excuse me, what's going on? And around that time, I was talking to the mom of one of the kids in James's class, and she asked if we had ever tried horse therapy. So I asked her if she had ever tried going to hell. Um, not really, but she, she went on and she said that her, her daughter had been doing it for a while, and she loved it, and that two months in, she had begun speaking. At which point I was like, where do I sign up as long as I don't have to ride with them? So we started sessions last September. And this is what that looks like. Every Monday, I pick him up early from school, and we drive to a barn 30 minutes north of our house. And every single time, I kid you not, no matter where we park, I get out of the car and I am standing downwind of the barn. And the unmistakable stench of horse shit assaults my nostrils. And I don't, I don't want to be gratuitous with the profanity, but it would offend me to use any other word for this. It's not poo-poo, it's not duty, it's not caca, it's horse shit. And I'm just trying to hide my gagging as James is yanking on my arm, jump, jumping up and down and laughing and pulling me toward what feels like my doom, or at the least not my comfort zone or my scene. And we walk into the barn, and it's open air, but not enough to get rid of the smell. And there are horse droppings scattered everywhere like little landmines. And then there are the cats. Now, I don't want to offend any feline lovers out there, but I've never been a cat fan. I feel like they're, they're just, they know too much. They're too smart. I have a couple theories about them. Um, I have a theory about the apocalypse and cats being on the wrong side of things. And um, another theory involving tr cats being behind Trump's campaign, which we can talk about later. But what I'm saying is this place we go every week is full of things that make me want to run in the opposite direction. But then my son grabs a brush off the wall, and he runs it up and down his horse, and he puts his helmet and his sunglasses on, and they lift him onto his horse. And I watch as he grins at me and walks around the ring doing occupational therapy for an hour. And somehow it's magical. Meanwhile, I sit there on a hard, uncomfortable bench where it's either freezing cold or nice and pleasant outside, but that's kind of a no-win either because the warmer it gets, the, the more powerful the smell of shit is. And it's, so it's tough either way. But with, and without fail, some cat will leap onto the bench beside me, and I will think, I just cannot handle this. This is so uncomfortable. Um, and then I look up, and I see my boy riding a horse. And I think about how two months in, I checked in with God, and I showed him my calendar, and I was like, hey, God, two months. He's supposed to be talking now. And his birthday came and went, and we now had a nonverbal four-year-old. And then a week later, he said his first word, and he hasn't stopped talking since. I feel I should be clear at this point that none of this was on that detailed outline I gave to God, just in case you were wondering. But here is something that was on there. I grew up about three hours from the Gulf of Mexico. Some of you may have heard of it. Um, we vacationed there more than anywhere. In fact, Jason and I got married there. And he grew up in California, not far from the frigid waters of the Pacific, 
which they refer to as a beach even though you need a special suit to swim in the water, but we'll just let them have it. <laughs> we've always said that we both wanted to end up living on the water some, at some point. Well, we live in Atlanta, beautiful landlocked Atlanta, where the closest large body of water is a river that according to a news report a few years ago has flesh-eating bacteria. So, so much for that plan. But for the past five years, we've lived in a neighborhood that's built on a system of creeks. And I just realized this after five years means we live on the water. I guess I should have been more specific in my outline. The only reason I even realized this is that my son, who like God did not get the memo that I'm not outdoorsy, loves to be outside. And one afternoon while his little brother was napping, James and I headed down to the park that's across the street from our house. And for the first time, he pulled me toward the creek. Now, this was a big deal because he's always been our cautious kid. That's just his personality, I think, but it's also due to some motor issues related to his spine. So when he started pulling me all the way down to the water, I really had a hard time telling him no. He had this curiosity and this confidence that I didn't want to quench. But the whole time, I was so uncomfortable. It was cold, and the bank was slippery, and I felt like I was going to fall in every second. And he kept pulling me, and soon we were right on the edge of the water. And he pulled me down, and we sat there on a rock as the water rushed by. And the thoughts in my head were all negative. I hate this. I'm so uncomfortable. I didn't know I could sweat from there. Why, God, why? And then I looked and saw my son gazing at the water with this rapt expression on his face. And I wonder why I couldn't do that. Just lose myself like that in this moment. So I started to let go a bit of my need to control the situation, and we began to play. We threw pine cones in the water. We stuck our toes in. Actually, he threw his socks in, which just about gave me a nervous breakdown. Uh, but I tried to roll with it. And then when it was time to head home, we skipped to the park entrance, and he was doing all this stuff that he just doesn't typically do. He's, um, he's a very intentional child. And again, I think do partially to personality, partially due to his motor issues. Um, but he has always practiced everything before he does it. Um, he rehearsed walking for months before he began to actually walk. <clears throat> and so when he started, he never fell. Um, meanwhile, his little brother is stumbling around like he's six beers in and he's got bruises all over his head. Um, but I've caught James practicing words when he thinks we're not listening. And so babbling and silliness are occasional things with him, but they're not, they're not common. So when he started babbling and giggling and laughing, I just sensed this relaxation coming from him. And I got him to ride on my back the whole way home, which was not comfortable because it was uphill the whole way. And I was thinking about how uncomfortable I was and how much my back was going to hurt. And then I heard him babbling and laughing, and I realized that he was more relaxed than I'd seen him in a, a long time. And so I relaxed, too. And once I did, I could actually feel, physically feel him respond. He clung to me less tightly, and he started singing. And I felt something overwhelm me. It was something I hadn't felt in a while, but at the same time, it was familiar I recognized that it was the same thing I felt on the beach when I got married, the same thing I felt when both of my children were born and cried for the first time and were placed on my chest, the same feeling I had when they wheeled James back to the hospital room where Jason and I were waiting after his spinal surgery. 
It was the recognition of someone who belongs to me and to whom I belong. And it's you, it's always been you moment. It was falling in love. I was falling in love with my little boy all over again. And as I let myself go and delight in him, I felt delighted in too. Not just by him, but I felt the love of God blazing on us both in a way that unfortunately I think is all too rare and not because it's not there. I should be clear that it's in those moments that I find it easiest to feel God's grace. But unfortunately, this is what I often look like after a big helping of it. A man has dreams of walking with giants to carve his niche in the edifice of time before the mortar of his zeal has a chance to congeal. The cup is dashed from his lips. The flame is snuffed a borning. He's brought to rack and ruin in his prime. Life is a rum go right, You know what I think? It's that woman, Mary Poppins. From the moment she stepped into this house, things began to happen to me. Mary Poppins? Yes, yes, of course. My world was calm, well-ordered, exemplary. Then came this person with chaos in her wake. And now my life's ambitions go with one fell blow. It's quite a bitter pill to take. It's that Poppins woman. She did Um, So poor Mr. Banks. I really relate to him in this one. His plan is shattered. His life is in ruins, he feels. And this is often how grace shows up in the debris and the messes of our lives. And it's so easy for me to miss it because it's so much easier to see it when things are going well. Like on Fridays or when I have a glass of wine in my hand or on vacation without the kids or on the Friday of a vacation without the kids when I have a glass of wine in my hand, which makes me suspect that I'm not a reliable narrator, that I'm not the best at perceiving grace wherever it shows up. So it's a good thing it doesn't rely on my recognition to be real. It just is. It's faithful, and it shows up in everything, even the shitty things, whether I want it to or not, whether I see it or not, it's always there. Kathleen Norris is a poet, and she wrote a book called The Quotidian Mysteries, and she wrote this passage. When my niece Christina was a toddler, her mother worked as a stockbroker and financial planner. My brother, her father, is a pastor. He would drive her to daycare in the morning, and her mother would pick her up after work. And every afternoon, she brought Christina an orange, peeled so that the child could eat it on the way home. One day, Christina was busying herself by playing Mommy's Office on the front porch of our house, and I asked her what her mother did at work. Without hesitation and with a conviction that I relish to this day, she looked up at me and said, she makes oranges. And that is what God does, I think, making oranges and wind in the ocean, and I would add in creeks and horses, and green leaves and everything else that constitutes our earthly home. The fruit we are given is not always what we expect or want. It may even be bitter, 
but we are secure in knowing that it is given to us out of love. So I don't think about heaven and eternity very much or as much as I probably should for a couple of reasons. One is that I'm already an anxious person and the idea of time without end just freaks me out and I have to put it down and stop. Um, the other reason that, is that I have no interest in adding a book to the Left Behind series, I think they're good there. So since I know we can't imagine what it's all, fully imagine what it's all going to be like, I just kind of leave it alone. But the night of that day at the creek with James, after we put the kids to bed, I had this moment of seeing an image of what it might be like, our heavenly arrival. And it partly came to mind because of a hymn we sang in church. It's called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And my favorite verse says this, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. So not long ago, I would have heard that and claimed it as proof that tomorrow is gonna be better. That morn, the morning, no more tears or like Scarlett said, tomorrow is another day but I'm beginning to get another idea about it. Because here's the thing, my experience of grace is usually somewhere between the Friday night with wine version and the bereft Mr. Banks version. In fact, I'll show you exactly what my experience of grace usually looks like. So what I mean by that, by this being grace for me, is not that it, that Grace looks like one of the two cutest kids in the world, which obviously this is. Um, and by the way, I love my younger son too, but the worst thing he's been through is getting tubes in his ears, so he has to earn his way into a Mockingbird conference. Um, what I mean by this being a picture of Grace to me is that it's about how it makes me feel, and that is deeply divided. On the one hand, I'm happy and joyful and proud because he has come so far and done so much, but it also makes me really sad because it's not fair. It's not fair that he has these challenges to overcome and it's not fair that the world will be hard for him in some ways that it's not for others, that he'll be misunderstood and underestimated and already has been. It's not fair that he spends hours in therapy every week. He's actually in therapy right now while other kids are playing. It's not fair that he has to deal with that. And to be honest, it doesn't feel fair that I have to deal with it either. I'm not up for that. This is not my comfort zone. And God is not supposed to give us more than we can handle, right? And that's where my image of heaven comes in because it's not that mourn shall tearless be, it's that mourn shall tearless be. And that shapes my now because on that mourn, Joy and pain won't have to be intertwined like they are here on earth. We won't need a pain that drives us into a deeper grace because grace will be standing right in front of us. It will have gone from involving feelings and ambivalence and experience and become solely a person. Now I'm no Tim LaHaye or Jerry Jenkins or even Kirk Cameron, but I can't help but think that our heavenly arrival won't be remarkable because of flowing robes or trumpet blasts or flashes of light, but because of a moment of quiet recognition, an awareness of belonging to someone and of him belonging to me, of home, of falling in love, feeling utterly delighted and delighted in. 
We won't need the tears anymore because we'll have Jesus and everything will make sense. And I think we're going to say, it's you. It's always been you. All of it was you because all of it was grace. Everything was grace and grace is everything. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. Thank y'all. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah, how does it show up for me? Um, It's made me so much more aware of how much of a jerk I am and how flawed I am. And while that sounds like really bad news, it's actually been the great liberating force in my life, I would say, because I know that I am still loved. Um, Like Paul was saying, it's... um, to, to come so close to your own failures on a daily basis, which I think is what a lot of parenthood is, um, and to know at the end of the day that you're still loved, it's, it's hard to believe it sometimes, and yet I know it's true. And so to carry that with me, I think um, it, it really just changes everything. Um, it helps me extend grace, which, I mean... I say all this, and then I look out at my husband in the audience, and I think, man, I, <laughs> I wonder what he's thinking now, because I, I really, I, I can be such a jerk every day, but, um, but I think it's just shown me uh, what it really means to love and be loved, and I think knowing how to love, a big part of that is knowing how to be loved, and so as I, um, as I love my children imperfectly and, and my husband imperfectly, um, it's just made me more willing to put up with chaos and, um, or at least try to, and, um, and, and let the long range plan unfold. And, and it's made me more comfortable with mystery because, um, James is a mystery and we all are really, and he's not the only one. I mean, we all have our, our thing. Um, but it's made me more comfortable with letting things unspool over time and um, maybe the simple word for that is patience, but I think it's something much deeper than that.
Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I don't think there was a choice for me, I think, early on. Being, being a writer and um, everything he's been through, I think, um, I, w- I feel like I'm the one who's, who's been told to, or who's called to tell his story until he's old enough to. And I, it's a um, huge responsibility, but it's a, it's a gift. And, um, yeah, it is, you know, it's, it's easy to sit down and write. It's not easy, but it's, to sit down and write a post about it is one thing, but to live it out in the day-to-day, Lauren, like we were saying, it's, um, it's just constant forgiveness and, and being awareness of redemption that's writ large over time. And that's what a story is. It doesn't happen in one sitting. Thanks for being here, guys.